Thanks for joining us on this week's episode, where we watch and discuss the Best Picture nominees from the 36th Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. So we're in 1963. Still in the 60s. We haven't left the 60s and things continue to be a lot. (laughs) There's so much happening in this decade. But before we get into that, I think we need to do a little bit of housekeeping on this episode, I guess. I love calling it housekeeping. We're not alone, as we usually are. I have invited a stranger onto the podcast, but he's only a stranger to Kelsey. And the audience. Yeah. This is my friend, Ben. He's a huge film nerd who has his, if you need his, you know, bona fides, he has seen every Best Picture winner in history. So he may be more of a film nerd than us. And he has lots to say about movies generally. So I thought it could be fun to bring him on, see what he has to say about 1963 and this particular set of nominees. Thank you for having me. Hi, Ben. Hi. Very excited to talk about this extremely strange year. Yes. Very excited to talk about this very strange year, indeed. And you're the first guest that we've had on this podcast. Oh, I'm honored. So this should be fun. But again, before we get into the movies, we should talk about the year. We can start with political news. Kennedy gets assassinated this year, so that's going on. And then Johnson becomes president, LBJ. Mm -hmm. And also, throughout this whole year, the civil rights movement is ongoing, the Big march on Washington that you've seen pictures of, 200,000 people marching happens this year. MLK gives his I Have a Dream speech. And then shortly after that is the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing. So horrible shit happening. What a shock. Yes, along those same lines. Stuff is also heating up in Vietnam. We're really committing to being involved with Vietnam. Cold War. Also ongoing, the Soviet Union, Britain, and the United States sign a partial nuclear test ban treaty this year. So that's kind of good news. Mm -hmm. And the Washington-Moscow hotline, the red phone you've heard so much about, is established this year. Do we trust LBJ to answer those 3 a.m. phone calls? (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) Who knows? (laughs) Also, domestically, Gideon v. Wainwright uh, was this year, which is a Supreme Court case that held that the 6th and 14th Amendments guarantee a right to legal counsel for anyone accused of a crime. So that's good. Yeah, but I'm going to be honest, it feels late. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) And then in a little bit of fun political news, at least for us, because we're just onlookers, in the UK, the Profumo scandal happens this year, where the UK Secretary of State for War has an affair with a 19-year-old model, and all hell breaks loose. The prime minister is forced to resign. Conservatives lose to labor at the next election. It's kind of a big deal. Can you imagine a politician having an affair? Never heard of such a thing. (laughs) We also have some science and health news. This is great news. The oral Mm -hmm. polio vaccine is distributed in the US and the UK. Widely. Very exciting. This is the one that they get on a sugar cube. All the kids line up at school and get their sugar cube with polio vaccine. And that's great. Sort of related to the Cold War stuff. The first woman is sent into space, Valentina Tereshikova. Obviously, the Russians sent the first woman into space. But again... But again, as we always say, the only goal of the space race was to get to the moon. And we had said that from the beginning. It's the only thing anyone cared about. So when we did it, we won case closed. Yes. 
but congrats on that. And then the lava lamp was invented and that's just fun. Huge news. In a interesting news, this again feels kind of late. The USPS introduces zip codes this year. Yeah. So that feels a little bit like how late it was that 911 got introduced. That happened in like the 70s. And you're like, how was anyone yeah. doing you're like, anything? What before? was anyone doing beforehand? <laughs> how did the mail get to people? I have no idea. And then we have some entertainment news. So big stuff is happening that still reverberates today. Marvel Comics, which had been founded just a couple of years before, first introduces Iron Man, X-Men, and the Avengers this year. So big names. Yeah, exactly. Vincent McMahon Sr. also founds the WWWF this year. It was not the first iteration of that territory, but they separated from the National Wrestling Alliance, which was a big deal. There was a whole scandal with the champion. There was a shoot match between Luthez and Buddy Rogers. It's a whole thing. Yeah, this is big news for Kelsey. In big news for someone else on this podcast, Doctor Who premieres this year. Ben's a huge Doctor Who fan. This Thoughts? is the single most important thing we could be possibly talking about on this podcast. So I say scrap the Oscars. Okay. I will talk about the first 26-year run of Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. We can move into the modern era if you want, but yeah. I mean, that would be yeah. a fascinating podcast. I've seen no Doctor Who, so it really would be you just lecturing at us. And I've seen, us. like, at most 10 episodes throughout random years. You would be extremely lost and disturbed by my nerdhood. Well, we'll save that for another day. Yes. In more British Invasion kind of news, the Beatles come to America. Their performance on Ed Sullivan that people think of as starting their real Beatlemania in America is the beginning of 64. But this is all the lead up to that. They're releasing music that you would have heard of. I Want to Hold Your Hand comes out this year. Ed Sullivan is in the process of booking them. Okay, so that's a lot of stuff. Again, the yes. 60s. It's a wild time. So we should get into, though, what was nominated this year. As we always do, we'll go through the nominees in alphabetical order. So the first nominee this year is America, America, a based on a true story drama about an ethnically Greek man trying to emigrate from Ottoman Turkey to the United States. It stars Stathis Gyalis. Directed by Ali Kazan, written by Ali Kazan. It was nominated for four and it won one Best Art Direction, Black and White. Next, we have Cleopatra, an epic about Cleopatra's relationship with Julius Caesar and Mark Antony. It stars Elizabeth Taylor, Rex Harrison, and Richard Burton. It was directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz, written by Joseph L. Mankiewicz, Ronald McDougall, and Sidney Buckman. It was nominated for nine and won four Academy Awards, Best Art Direction, Color, Best Cinematography, Color, Best Costume Design, Color, and Best Special Effects. Then we have How the West Was Won, a multi-generational epic about the settling of the American West. It stars Debbie Reynolds, George Pappard, Jimmy Stewart, Gregory Peck, John Wayne, and Henry Fonda, among many, many others. Huge cast. Yeah. It was directed by Henry Hathaway, John Ford, and George Marshall. It was written by James R. Webb. It was nominated for eight, and it won three. Best Writing, Story and Screenplay, written directly for the screen. Best Film Editing, and Best Sound. Then we have Lilies of the Field, a comedy about a man helping a group of nuns build a chapel in Arizona. It stars Sidney Poitier, Lilia Scala, and Stanley Adams. It was directed by Ralph Nelson and written by James Poe. Nominated for five, it won one. Best Actor for Sidney Poitier. And then finally, we have Tom Jones, an adaptation of the Henry Fielding novel about a bastard and his pursuit of a gentlewoman. It stars Albert Finney and Susanna York. It was directed by Tony Richardson, written by John Osborne. It was nominated for eight, and it won four. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay Based on Material from Another Medium, and Best Music Score, Substantially Original. 
Love that. Let's run through the top five highest grossing movies of the year so you get a sense of what people were watching, regardless of what the Academy thought. The number one was Cleopatra. Two, How the West Was Won. Three, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Four, Tom Jones. And five, Irma La Douce. So three of the five nominees mm-hmm. are in there. Pretty good. Um, and then we like to talk about anything particularly notable that happened in film this year. One of the big ones, we've mentioned it a couple of times before, is Cleopatra. It was the highest grossing movie of this year, but it also almost bankrupted 20th Century Fox. <laughs> yeah, what a wild story in Hollywood history this was. They overspent like wild for a variety of reasons. And yeah, 20th Century Fox was just able to withstand the extreme expenditure. I mean, I think we'll probably talk a little bit about it when we get into Cleopatra, but the story of the production is just the greatest comedy of errors. It's it's a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, but even though it was the highest grossing film of the year, it did still manage to lose money. So that is very hard to do. One of the biggest sort of box office disasters in history. Exciting times. Also important this year, Sidney Poitier becomes the second African-American to win an Oscar. Only 24 years after Hattie McDaniel won Best Supporting Actress for Gone with the Wind. He, of course, is also the first... A mere 24 (laughs) years. He's also, of course, the first African-American to win an acting award in a lead role. And of course, you know, again, is it a watershed moment? Are we going to see a bunch of other Black people win shortly afterwards? Absolutely not. (laughs) It's an aberration. Yeah. How exciting. Yeah. God, that's a bummer. But anyway, we'll talk more about Sidney Poitier as we go. And third, this is something Ben particularly wanted us to mention. It is not a Best Picture nominee. It is not even a feature film. It is the winner of the Best Short Film this year, An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. This is probably the most widely seen Best Live Action Short from the Oscars because it was rebroadcast on The Twilight Zone. They were looking for ways to cut costs, and the rights to the short were cheaper than producing an episode. And the producers mm-hmm. loved it. Rod Serling loved it. They put it out there. Great episode. I've never seen this short in its original form. I don't know how many people alive today who have. Well, it's so hard to get a hold of shorts. I never know how to find them. And the people talk about important ones nominated for Oscars and you're like, great, is it on Netflix? Like, I don't know how. You would think it, it would be something that the Academy, now that we're in the digital age, would, you know, they'd have some kind of archive and they'd make mm-hmm. it available to people. But not that I know of. Maybe someday. Yes, but it's pretty easy to find as the Twilight Zone episode. And it's mm-hmm. it's still definitely worth a watch, I think, in that format. It's a fun one. Totally. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a lot of information that we just threw at you. So what won? We did say. Yes. What won that year was Tom Jones. You know, we tried to always find what did people think about it at the time. We asked Ben if he had any knowledge about it. And it seems like the consensus is people did like it. It was one of the highest grossing films of the year. It was a big hit with audiences and slightly mixed when it first came out from critics. Which is interesting because that parallels the way that the original Henry Fielding book was, where it was a huge Mm -hmm. smash hit. And critics at the time were were a little aghast at its portrayal of society. Fascinating. So when we look more at the historical consensus, this is an interesting one. The research we usually do is looking at everybody's, you know, worst winner lists and looking at the rankings and looking at anything anyone has to say. And 
I wouldn't say there's like a resounding, you know, hatred for this movie. It's not on the lists of worst things ever. It's not like Crash or whatever people want to say is their least favorite best picture winner. But still, I think people struggle a little bit to get their minds around the movie. Absolutely. I mean, I would say this is probably the weirdest movie to win best picture. You know, and that's that's coming after the artist won Best Picture, right? Where it's like <laughs> yeah. that that you'd think a silent movie in the 21st century would be the the one to win that title. I, I honestly think this movie is so utterly bizarre, and and I can understand why people really do not connect with it. Mm-hmm. I can I can truly understand that because it is not an easy movie to love. But like it's it's a movie that is interesting to see the historical context of when it came out and to remind people that the Oscars aren't the end all be all permanent. You know, these things are clearly the best things ever made. It's over a three or four month section of the year. This is what people at one moment when they were asked to do a survey said, sure, this one. (laughs) And a very small, particular group of people doing the voting. Exactly. But that raises an interesting question for us. And I think the nominees overall this year are a bit of a challenge. But are we mad that Tom Jones won Best Picture this year? Maddie, I will start with you. I have really gone back and forth on this one. And I find myself unable to be mad about it because it's just so strange. So I'm going to say no. All right. I'm not mad. Ben? I'm not mad, but I, I don't think it should have won. Kels? I'm going to say, yes, I'm mad. So, okay, we'll go through the rest of them and say, would we have been mad if they won? Yes. So, America, America. Kelsey, would you have been mad? Yes. Ben? No. Maddie? I'm so torn on so many of these movies. I guess I'll say no. Okay. Anyway, it's mixed, so it doesn't matter. Next is Cleopatra. Would you have been mad? Yes. 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 (laughs) That one's clear for all of us. How the West was won? Yes. Oh, resounding, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Lilies of the Fields. Yes. No. I think yes. All right. Well, so we have again we'll get into two it. Two all yeses, three mixed. So we start mm-hmm. with our yeah, we all would have been mad about them. Should we start with Cleopatra? Start with Cleopatra? <laughs> or how the rest was one? Either 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 way. Let's go alphabetical. Cleopatra it is. Okay. You want to summarize? To give, I'll give the front down, <laughs> okay, I guess. Sure. But I'm going to give it as briefly as possible. Well, to be fair to Cleopatra, I do think it is largely historically accurate. So, like, if you know so Roman just history, just look it up. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's it's sort of divided into a couple of acts, books, whatever. So the first half of it is her story with. Julius Caesar. He comes to Egypt. She and her brother are having conflict about running the place. He is sort of on her side and ends up helping her force out her brother. The two of them forge this bond. He has been having trouble conceiving with his wife. She basically is like, I could give you a child who's going to rule the world. And so they have a kid together. There's a lot of political stuff going on back home. Yada, yada, yada. (laughs) He goes back to Rome. Cleopatra finally ends up being invited to Rome, even though his wife, who is still in Rome, is also there. And she makes a big spectacle. His right-hand man, Mark Antony, sees her and is sort of like, wow, wow, she's super cool. And he becomes obsessed with her. 
And then Caesar gets killed. You know the story. You see the Shakespeare play. Exactly. So she has to sneak out. She goes back to Egypt. Mark Antony, who has promised that he will be a pal, kind of, they make this kind of arrangement as she's leaving, doesn't come to Egypt. The two of them, out of spite, I guess, don't write to each other for like three years. (laughs) Finally, he needs her help. She needs his help. They figure out a way to neither of them lose face and see each other again. They get together. And so now they're in love. He's in Egypt. The two of them are working as a team. Same sort of stuff happens where like he wants to marry her and then they're at odds with the other people who are trying to run Rome, namely Octavius. In? Octavian. Octavian. I Octavian. Think. Julius Caesar's nephew. And heir. Yes, and heir. And so there's conflicts. Mark Antony is leading the troops that are on Cleopatra's side against Octavian. It culminates in a big sea battle. Mark Antony is soundly defeated, but he ends up abandoning his troops because he sees that Cleopatra is leaving. And so then he must live with the shame of having gone after Cleopatra instead of dying honorably with his men. Then he goes into a spiraling depression and alcoholism because he can't deal with the fact that he fucked up so badly. And then what? Yada, yada, yada. Octavian comes back and yeah. yeah. And basically he wins. So, you know, this is happening yeah. as you, anyone who's seen Julius Caesar knows, right? There's conflict within Rome. There's the war between Julius Caesar and Pompey. And then now that the senators killed Julius Caesar, there's a power struggle and Octavian and Mark Antony and some other guy formed a triumvirate. And there's power struggles about who's actually going to be in control of Rome. And Octavian wants to win. And so he ends up killing Mark Antony. And then Cleopatra commits suicide by being bitten by an asp at the end of the film. And also they kill her son. So that's it. Yeah, it's over. It's strong. At the end, it's very, you know, like Romeo and Juliet vibes of the I I he think like he kills himself because he thinks that she's dead and then she finds him nearly dying and then she kills herself. It's you, you could see why Shakespeare was interested in these people. Yeah. But that's Cleopatra. It's four hours long. Yes. Four hours. I honestly think once you pass the the seven samurai threshold, right? You pass three hours, three and a half hours. You have to really justify your length, right? I think you need to justify your length if you're three hours. Well, but. Sure, but like you really, 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 really need to do that. At four hours, you're making a statement. Yeah. yeah. I mean, should we talk about the fact that Mangalwitz wanted this to be two films and the Yes, and I think studio. you have to talk about that because it's quite clear. So like, as we mentioned, the development process of this movie was a nightmare. They had like a bunch of different scripts. They brought different people on who all wrote their own scripts. Mankiewicz was writing it on the fly. They shot apparently like a hundred hours of footage and he gets back and he's editing it and he goes to the studio, which has already spent so much money on this movie. And he's like, it needs to be two films. We're going to do Julius Caesar and Cleopatra, the first film. And then we're going to do Cleopatra and Antony, the second film. And the studio did not want to do that because the Burton Taylor affair was such big news and they were concerned if they waited for the Antony Cleopatra part, it would fizzle out and no one would care anymore. So they needed to capitalize on the scandal by releasing the whole thing at once. And it was mm-hmm. the wrong choice. Because I think the first half of this movie is actually pretty okay. If this was just the Julius Caesar Cleopatra. Well, Rex Harrison as Julius Caesar is great. Yeah, yes. if, yeah. I think it would be fine. I think mm-hmm. the second half has more problems, but maybe it was its own movie. It would have worked better. Maybe. But yeah, it probably should have been two films. 
it's funny, you know, watching it this time, the first hour and 20 minutes feels like you can just jettison it out. And the movie should start mm-hmm. with her giant arrival in Rome. And I was thinking to myself, why is that? And then I looked it up and you're right. I mean, the splitting it into two movies is absolutely the correct way to tell the story. And again, another example of studio execs not not listening to a, a bona fide storyteller. Well, it's both, right? Because if the studio says there can only be one movie and you are like, well, fuck it. I'm just putting it all in there. Like, <laughs> this is a goddamn nightmare. Everyone made the worst decision, and the studio should have found this cut unreleasable. I don't know why it ever came out like this. They should have demanded that he cut it into one movie, and instead, it's a monstrosity. And at the same time, though, right, to be fair, if it just hadn't cost so much money to make, it was a very successful film. Yeah. A lot of people saw it. You know, we recently covered this current Academy Awards, and one of the things that I was so shocked by was that All Quiet on the Western Front from 2022 only cost $20 million to make. $10 million less yeah, than Cleopatra. Cleopatra cost $31.1 million to make. Unadjusted so. for inflation. <laughs> yes, unadjusted. unadjusted for inflation. So just consider that it costs more to make at the time than All Quiet on the Western Front than everything ever all at once costs to make. Yep, It's wild. Now, to be fair, I think some of that money is on screen. There's a lot to look at. The costumes are incredible. That scene when she comes to Rome is really It's spectacular. Well, and just the sight of thousands of people, right? There's no CGI. Most of the movie is done without matte paintings. So they built real sets in the distance. You can see that on on screen. But then half of the runtime of the film is two or three people having a dialogue scene on what's clearly a soundstage. And you go, how could this be the most expensive movie ever made? It's all the sets. Every time they wheeled out a new set, and I was like, I don't think we've seen this before. Why? What's the point? It's just another conversation in a different room. (laughs) I don't understand why they did this. One of the scenes that I've I've read people point out as being such a a microcosm of this film is there's a scene in the second half when Cleopatra's having an argument with Mark Antony, and they cut three times so she can be in a different location wearing a different outfit while they're having this one argument. And you're like, yeah, I think that's what happened. I mean, the costumes are cool, yeah. but come on. Just for the record, she had 65 costumes in the movie. Yeah, but I was looking at the numbers and it's like 70 something sets and like 24,000 costumes or something they made. For all the it. extras, yeah. 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 So yeah, I, I do think the first half of this movie works okay. I, whether or not we should cut the first hour 20, I don't know. But I do like yeah. Rex Harrison a lot. I thought he was very funny. Rex Harrison's my favorite part of it. Very early on in the movie, when they first come to Egypt, and they need to figure out how to get up to the palace. And they're like, are we going to fight our way through? And Rex Harrison goes, no, we're going to shop our way to the palace. <laughs> That's a very funny thing to say. He's a genius. Yeah. Yeah, he's fantastic. I mean, part of it is that Caesar just feels like the most interesting character because he's like knows what he's doing Mm -hmm. and the other ones are fumbling around making terrible decisions a lot of the time and i also really liked his relationship with his mute manservant flavius the guy who is mute Mm -hmm. and they all love him and he tells awesome stories that was a great character and then when caesar dies at the end they pan back and you see him and he's crying (laughs) oh 
Yeah, that was cool. I mean, the Caesar stuff, I think, is the best stuff. Rex Harrison's great. I don't, obviously, like, Liz Taylor and Richard Burton are good actors, but the stuff that they have them doing in the second half of the movie is just not that watchable. I don't think they're particularly good in this movie. Elizabeth Taylor looks incredible, right? Like, you watch and you're like, yeah, absolutely, put her on screen as much as you can, but, you know, she's better and other stuff and richard burton absolutely this is not his best performance i wrote down a quote from liz taylor because she also did not find that it was a very good movie this is her review of it they had cut out the heart the essence the motivations the very core and tacked on all those battle scenes it should have been about three large people but it lacked reality and passion i found it vulgar that's cleopatra (laughs) what more needs to be said All right. Should we talk about how the West was won? I guess I'm summarizing that one. So how the West was won, as we said, is a a multi-generational story about the settling of the West. So we start with this family that's going out to the Ohio area to get some land to start a farm. There's parents and two daughters. And as they're going along, they meet a mountain man, Jimmy Stewart. And the one daughter immediately falls in love with him and... They end up getting together. The parents end up dying in a whitewater rafting (laughs) incident. (laughs) Well, they go down rapids and they die. And so then the older daughter decides that she's going to settle in the location where they ended up right when their parents died. And that's where she's going to establish her farm. She's going Mm -hmm. to do it with Jimmy Stewart. The younger daughter's like, I'm going back east. She's never wanted to go out west. But she ends up working as basically a showgirl in St. Louis. A lot of men like her. She finds out that some man has left her a gold mine. So she ends up heading to California to get this gold mine that she's been left. And along the way, she meets Gregory Peck, who learns that she has this gold mine and is interested in her for that reason. And he's like, I'll protect you along the trail. Every woman needs protection along the trail, which is kind of true. And at the same time, the guy who's running the the wagon train falls in love with her as well. And he keeps telling her she's got a very, what's what's the phrase he uses? Like sturdy body. <laughs> Something creepy. Yeah. Constantly telling her she has a sturdy body. Anyway. She's she they have a you know they get attacked by Native Americans. She's rescued by Gregory Peck and she ends up falling in love with him. They get out to her claim and find out that there really wasn't any gold there and anything that was found the guy who's been sitting there protecting is like I think you owe me all that money and she's like okay. And she ends up working as a, a showgirl again and the guy who thinks she has a sturdy body is like did Gregory Peck leave you when he found out you didn't have any money and she's like yeah, but I get it. I mean, what are you going to do? I, I would have left me too. Yeah. He's like, I could still marry you. I'm a wealthy rancher. And again, you have a sturdy body. She's like, no, thank you. She ends up reconnecting with Gregory Peck and they end up making a life together. At the same time, the woman who married Jimmy Stewart, they have kids. Jimmy Stewart's gone off to fight in the Civil War. The older son is like, I want to go off to war too, like dad. It's going to be a great time. And the mom's like, I'm not sure about that. And he's like, come on, mom, let me go to war. And she's like, okay. And he goes to fight in the Civil War and it's not a great time. So after the war, he leaves and he goes to act as security for the railroad. And the railroad guys are real unethical and a shocking turn of events. And he gets disillusioned. And he also then leaves that job and he becomes a a sheriff. And his aunt comes to visit who's Debbie Reynolds later in life. And he has a run in with a bad guy and he has to 
get rid of the bad guy because he's, you know, the lawman of the West. He's so bad. And that, I think, is that's pretty much everything that happens in How the West Was Won. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. They sure won it. That West was won. I think we have to start off by talking about the opening narration in this film. So Spencer Tracy narrates this film and th- love Spencer Tracy. We all do. And this is, this is the <laughs> opening narration. He says, this land has a name today and is marked on maps, but the names and the marks and the land all had to be one, one from nature and from primitive men. And you're like, I told Patty, I paused the movie at that point. I put my head in my hands and I said out loud, Oh no, oh no, oh no. (laughs) And then fascinatingly though, later in that same narration, he's talking about the mountain men. And he also says, they were known as mountain men, a new breed, more Indian than the Indians in all but blood. And you're like, this is like coming in hot, you guys. (laughs) (laughs) They want you to know what the vibe of the piece is going to be from the very beginning. Yeah. But how'd you guys feel about how the West was won? Oh boy, not great. Not, not not great. Part of it is, you know, one, you're begging the movie throughout to stop being racist, right? You, multiple mm-hmm. chances for it not to be racist. And it looks and it says, no, I'll, I'll be racist. I'll, I'll do that. And then it also was shot in three lens Cinerama, right? So it was intended to be projected on a very specific format screen mm-hmm. to properly show the image. It looks awful on a TV. I mean, it looks terrible. And it also, because of that three lens setup, you are limited with the way you can move and frame your shots. So there's basically no close-ups of anyone's faces in the film. People are awkwardly placed. The blocking is bizarre. You can't do shot reverse and have it actually work. So yeah, it's impressive that you can see these giant vistas of of lakes and rivers and mountains, and you can see the scope of somebody getting a pail of water from a creek with a giant peak behind them. But when Jimmy Stewart's talking to someone, you just want to throw your remote at the TV. And then it's this bizarre anthology aspect where apparently it's about yeah. one family over the years. But you just don't care. You don't spend enough time with any of the family members Mm -hmm. to want to see them succeed or survive. And sometimes you forget when it jumps to the Civil War, all of a sudden it's like, oh, this 20-year-old actress is now supposed to be in convincing middle-aged makeup. And you're like, no. And she's got a kid (laughs) who's going to join up on the Union side. And you're like, no. Well, also, right, I, I assume he's playing like 18, 19, but that actor is in his mid-30s and he looks it. So you're like, how old is this son? <laughs> well, because they, they cast pretty much everyone in this movie as like a 30-year-old actor to play from teenager to middle age. Yeah. And so there, there's not a lot to be done in 1963 about convincingly making everyone look the right age. And so they don't really try. And you're just supposed to be like, I guess this is Jimmy Stewart's son now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I agree with you about all of that. It's just hard to care, like leaving aside the racism from a storytelling perspective, you don't care about any of the people or anything that's happening to them. They don't put any time making you invest in them, in the family, in the relationships between them, in the people themselves. I guess the kid is like kind of the main-ish character if there is one, because I feel like he spans most of the story. 
And they do try to make him likable, I guess. Like, he is there telling the railroad guys that they shouldn't lie and cheat the Native Americans. And you're like, that's good, I guess. And then you follow him along and he, like, has a family. And you're like, okay. But then you're just supposed to buy in. The stuff at the end with the criminal that he needs to kill is Mm -hmm. just so strange because they haven't seeded that in anywhere. You don't know about his relationship with this guy. He comes out of nowhere and they treat it like all movie. He's been this guy's nemesis. (laughs) You're like, I don't know who this is. Why should I care about him? That's sort of the experience of the whole thing. Why should I care about any of this stuff that's happening? I agree with that. There's a lot of things. They're just like, you just have to accept this. You just have to accept that when this young girl sees Jimmy Stewart, she's immediately... Head over heels, so smitten <laughs> with him, and you're like, hard to believe, but okay, that's the power. Jimmy of Jimmy Stewart, man. the least convincing mountain man of all time, and also this is like the least appealing Jimmy Stewart's ever been. It's interesting because we're going to talk about a non-nominee later in the podcast where the two leads have a very similar age difference, at least the actors do, and that works pretty well. Like you, you're following the love story in the movie, and it's okay. In this one, you're like. I don't know if it's just the way they've done up Jimmy Stewart. I love Jimmy Stewart. I love Jimmy Stewart. Me too. Everybody does. It, it's it's rough. I did like when he his makeup is bad. He yeah, looks his hair. Bad. His wig is bad. Yes. I mean, Jimmy was fifty five years old at this point, but he looks so. eighty. Yes. Man. No. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> but it, you know, he's supposed to be playing jimmy stewart from the 40s right like yeah. and and he's not he you just have to accept that is not who jimmy stewart is anymore but also like there's nothing about jimmy stewart that reads mountain man i did like when he killed one of those thieves with a throwing knife though i thought that was pretty yep. cool <laughs> that was cool so this is another one where the fact that there are different times and different stories none of them ever tie together in a way that's satisfying and so it feels really jumpy and they did hire different directors to direct each of the sections of the thing. I'm not sure how much of a payoff there is for that. <laughs> I was expecting the John Ford section to be like more important, but the Civil War section to me feels very slight. There's not much happening in that. It feels like they're going for a spectacle, but in ways that are meaningless, that you don't care about. They're like, that people are going to go home and be like, ooh, the part that John Ford directed. And the and you're like... Remember when they were down the river rapids? Remember when there was an Indian attack? And it's like, yeah. barely. You know, what I do remember is the fact that this movie ends by saying the pinnacle of human civilization is downtown Los Angeles and the 101 freeway. And let me tell you, it is not. (laughs) Yeah. It's awful. Yeah, the stuff they show at the end is like, we did it. Civilization won. And you're like, okay, the Hoover Dam. Yeah, cool. Great. I guess the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But like, I'm sorry, the 101 freeway should not. The loving shots uh -uh. of traffic. It doesn't work. It's not a great movie. Okay. Why belabor it? Yeah. (laughs) So the rest of them are mixed. So we have America, America, Mm -hmm. Lilies of the Field, and Tom Jones. We usually end with the winner. Let's keep rolling on our long films. Let's do America, America. I can feel the the plot synopsis on this one. So this is a fictionalized tale based off of Elia Kazan's uncle and his travels to America. And it's about a a Greek named Stavros who lives with his family in 
the Ottoman Empire in Turkey in the late 1800s. And after a massacre of ethnic Armenians, he and his family realized that the Turks eventually are going to turn on the Greek minority that lives in Turkey. So they give them all of the family jewels, all of their savings, and send them off to Constantinople to work with a family member, make his way in the world, and then bring the rest of the family there so then they can have a better life, if not get out of Turkey completely. Unfortunately, he gets robbed and taken advantage of multiple times on his way there. Once he's in the city, his cousin that he's supposed to work for in his carpet store gets pissed that he came empty-handed because he was expecting to use the cash influx to help the business. So his solution is, I'm going to marry you off to somebody, some rich girl. Stavros rejects this, and he goes and he lives off the street instead, eats garbage, does you know odd jobs left and right, seems to be earning enough money eventually, if he doesn't kill himself doing this, to get a a ticket to go to America. That's his goal. I have to make a hundred pounds and I can get a ticket and go to America and make a better life for myself and bring the family there. And again, his life gets screwed over. He gets robbed. He's at his wits end. So he goes back to his cousin, goes along with his plan to get married off to a rich daughter of another merchant. He can't go through with it because that's not what he actually wants. He takes the money from the dowry, buys a ticket to America, has an affair with a rich woman, is found out by the rich woman's husband, who then arranges for him to be deported when they arrive in America. He takes the place of a friend who has tuberculosis on the boat and kills himself, and he pretends to be that friend so he can sneak into America. He gets a new name. He makes a life for himself. And then the movie ends saying he brings his family to America. Yes. America, America. America, America. 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 Kelsey, thoughts? I think it's interesting that this is his family history. And I appreciate that's why he wanted to tell the story. I also think it's interesting and I, you know, I don't know how fictionalized it is and how much of it is true. And it is, I think, also always a little difficult when you're watching an older movie, but there's just so many story beats in this story that feel very cliche. So, you know, the minute his family is like, we're giving you everything to take to Constantinople, you're immediately like, there's no way any of this stuff is reaching Constantinople with him. And it doesn't. I thought it was just a little too long. It's beautifully shot. I think it's well acted. I just wasn't super interested in it. Fair enough. I agree with you that it is too long. I think to me, I was more charmed by the like, this is the family story element of it. And the stuff that plays as cliche, to me is sort of like, I wouldn't be surprised if this is how this family story gets handed down, right? It becomes more and more sensationalized. I think a lot of it could be cut out. But I, I liked the kid. I really was interested in the drama of the his relationship with the girl that he's supposed to marry where like he can't help but 
like her. She's a really good person and would obviously be a great partner for him. And the life that is being described for him sounds great. The father-in-law is like, and then we'll go to this beautiful island for a month every year. And it's going to be so great. And you want to do anything and you're going to be rich immediately. It sounds like a nice, easy way out, but he can't abandon his idea of America. And so that scene they have where he tells her that all along he has just been trying to get to America and she's devastated and he feels so bad (laughs) like I loved that scene and the relationship with the friend who kills himself so he could take his place like there's some heart-wrenching stuff in here and then I thought there were funny beats I actually enjoyed the asshole guy who gloms onto him to steal his money on his way to Constantinople my friend my friend you would deny me a meal you would deny me your friendship yeah the shamelessness of him and then like taking all of the money not that when he sues in court to get the money back, pretending that it's his, and then immediately the judge steals all the money, and he's just sort of like, oh, sorry that I lost all of your money. <laughs> this guy's unbelievable. I think I was just frustrated by the main character's naivete, which is maybe a little yeah. unfair. <laughs> I can understand that being your experience of it. But though. also, right, is it part of their family history that their uncle just murdered a man, and they're just like, I guess he did, and that's fine. And you're like, is it? <laughs> I don't know. I guess like shit happened back in the old country. I, you know, I would be I think I'm maybe more troubled by that than the movie is. But OK. Yeah. But yeah, for the most part, I found there to be some really enjoyable parts of it. And I liked the acting and I liked how it looked. It was beautiful. Just the personal nature of it was interesting. I agree. I mean, it's a beautifully naturalistic film that does go on a little too long. And I think that is our contemporary tastes, you know, looking back Mm -hmm. on a two hour and 48 minute movie and going, did it need to be longer than two and a half hours? And I think there's something to be said for the creative prowess of Kazan to be able to say, oh, the moment they bring up the jewels, you know, they're going to get stolen. The moment you see the rich, unhappy woman, they're going to have an affair. There's so Mm -hmm. much communicated by the actors, by their looks, by the way their eyes track across the screen. I mean, it is performance-wise very impressive. And you're right, for a movie that has pain and suffering and murder and, and massacres, you know, the start of the Armenian genocide, one of the first phases of it. There is a lot of humor. There's a lot of moments where it cuts and you go, I can't believe you went from that scene to that scene. This is, I'm writing about my life and how great it is. And then it cuts to the parents reading the letter and they go, yeah, that's bullshit. (laughs) And I, I really do. I really do appreciate it also as someone whose family, half my family came via Ellis Island in that wave of immigration, right? In that 1880s to 1920 wave. And and I got to wonder, it's like, what were the things that my utterly destitute ancestors did in order to get to America and then get from America to where they eventually settled to live in a shack, right? It's like they were living in a shack. How is this better from what they left? So in that respect, I found it fascinating to to hear that from a a different artist. Yeah. And there's something just interesting and cool about the whole implication of the piece is it was worth it, right? Because here I'm Elia Kazan. This is what it led to. Like, look at me now. (laughs) Isn't that amazing that this has happened? Which is an interesting just sort of meta narrative of it. You get to the end of the movie and just knowing the movie, you're like, okay, I guess maybe his life will be better now. But knowing 
that it's this real person's story is sort of interesting. You know, another thing we we were talking about how, oh, it looks great, right? And it was the winner for art direction for Black and White. But shockingly, Haskell Wexler, one of the best cinematographers ever to live, who was nominated for tons of Oscars, was not nominated for this film, which I find a very Hmm, interesting snub. Yeah. America, America. America, America. America. (laughs) Okay, well, let's move on to Lilies of the Field. Lilies of the Field is a story of Sidney Poitier's character who is just traveling through a a little town and he stops off at a house, seemingly, because he needs to cool down his car. It's like overheating. And it's a place where a number of German nuns are living. They've come long and far to get to this location and they want to build a chapel. A chapel. <laughs> and they, the lead nun determines that this man has been sent from God to build them this chapel. Initially, they just get him to help fix the roof. And then they slowly just are like, you can't leave. You can't leave. You have to build this chapel. Stay on. And they're sort of able to harangue him into doing it. They worship several miles away on the site that's a gas station in a little dinette. Most of the parishioners appear to be Hispanic, probably Mexican-American, and they're serviced by this traveling priest who goes around to multiple locations. He does not have his own church. And this is who they want to build this chapel for. There's also a, a white guy who they're constantly trying to get supplies out of. He's not the most racist character, but certainly prejudiced. And he's like, these nuns are crazy. It's never going to happen. These people don't need stuff, yada, yada, yada. Everyone comes together. They build the chapel. Sidney Portier, you know, develops a really nice relationship with the nuns. There's a period where they have a slight falling out and he disappears for a little while, but then he does come back and they finish everything up. Uh, and then at the end of the movie, he leaves. And that's sort of lilies of the field. Lilies of the field. How'd you guys Um, feel about it? It's very pleasant. It's a pleasant little movie. I mean, it's very much in the genre of white people and black people are friends. Racism is over sort of movie, which I guess it makes it very understandable that audiences of 1963 were interested in it. I think Sidney Poitier is great. As always, I think this is a fun role for him. It's not his necessarily his exact usual type. To me, this role read kind of like a Paul Newman-y, like the strapping young guy rolls into town and, you know, works odd jobs kind of guy. And so I thought it was really fun to see that for Sidney Poitier, there's, you know, fun little funny moments. It just, for me, felt insubstantial. I was like, that's a pleasant diversion of an afternoon, but I don't really understand it in the context of Best Picture. I was like, what is this movie saying or doing that is really that interesting? I watched and I was kind of like, okay, cute little movie (laughs) was my reaction to it. There is a subgenre I like to call quiet movies, right? That that Mm -hmm. do kind of fit that bill where you can view them as slight or inconsequential and the Academy every once in a while likes to to visit on those. You've got Coda, you've got Marty from 1955. It is a 90-minute, simple, straightforward film. And it's, I mean, it's Paddy Shaevsky, so it's got that going for it. This movie, I think, doesn't work without Sydney, right? I think yeah. you have any actor in that role who is lesser than one of our best actors of the 20th century, you kind of fail. Because there isn't much more to go on, right? I I really appreciated its tight storytelling. It knows it's not going to do too much, 
the movie starts, his car breaks down 30 seconds into the movie, right? It's just like Ralph Nelson presents Lilies of the Field, and then there he is, his car is broken down. One minute later, he's there with the nuns, and mm -hmm. the plot just, it starts, and it just does not go off on anything frivolous. There's no extra subplots. This is it. And, and in that respect, I, you know, I appreciated it in a week that we had to watch Cleopatra and How the West was won. Oh, I am not going to say this was not like a... It's a glass of fresh balm. squeezed orange juice. <laughs> it is exactly that in the context of the rest of the movies of this year. I liked this movie. I thought it was sweet. I thought it was cute. I agree with you. It, mm -hmm. it does feel sort of insubstantial. But yeah, my overwhelming takeaway was like, my God, Sidney Poitier is a charismatic performer. We recently 1, did... 1,000%. Butch Cassidy, and we were talking about like Robert Redford and Paul Newman were movie stars. Sidney Poitier was a movie star. Movie he's star, just, yeah. You can't take your eyes off him. He's so fun to watch. I thought there were some scenes in this movie that were really quite funny and enjoyable. I love the scene after he had like the nuns don't have a lot of food, so they've been feeding him very minimally as he's doing this labor. And when they go to church, he doesn't go with them because he's not Catholic, he's a Baptist. And he mm -hmm. stops in the dinette to have a meal. And I love that scene between him and the guy who runs it's the dinette so where he's yes. yeah, requesting he that freshly squeezed orange juice. Adding things yeah. to his order. Let's add some pancakes, let's add some toast, let's add make it five to six eggs. Yeah. 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 I said freshly squeezed. He's like, I squeezed it this morning. He tastes and he goes, very nice. Very nice. <laughs> and it's their great. relationship was great, him and the guy yeah, that runs I love the diner. But yeah, I mean, also, just as you were saying, Ben, in a year where we're watching these incredibly long films, like this little this little short, fluffy light film was really nice. I think you can watch it and it's not hard to sit through. When we did Going My Way in 44, I think my main takeaway from that was like it's no sister act. This is closer mm. to sister, right? Like if you're going <laughs> to program your nun movies, nun movies, you could put this, I think, in into your, your nun movie program a little bit more easily. I did like the part where he left and came back and his car door was broken and he was wearing like a real jazzy shirt and was super hungover. And, and you're like, like, what the fuck did you do while you were gone? <laughs> did you get into Sydney <laughs> Poitier? So there's yeah. like things in this movie that I like too, but um, yeah, I, I wouldn't say there's much in this movie that I actively didn't like. Mm -hmm. I just was sort of like, okay, yeah. like cute little movie. It's mostly like uh, for Sydney. Sydney's incredibly watchable. I'd watch him or whatever. And I'm never going to be that mad at a 90 minute movie. True. I, I find it kind of fascinating though, that this is the only movie he ever won an Oscar for. Because it's really not, I mean, I guess I could say it's not that demanding of a role, but it does entirely rest on his shoulders. Yeah. <laughs> if he weren't in it, there would be no movie. So there is that. I mean, it, the orange juice line, right? Coming out of anyone else's mouth. It doesn't, it just doesn't work. The very nice. Mm -hmm. It's perfectly mm -hmm. delivered. Yeah, yeah. It's really good. All right. That leads to the winner, Tom Jones. Ben, do you want to summarize Tom Jones? Oh, sure. I think you should. Absolutely. So Tom Jones is an adaptation of Henry Fielding's 1749 novel, The History of Tom Jones, A Foundling, which is about a bastard in the most literal sense. He is a, mm -hmm. a baby who was found. The mother is shamed. We don't know who the father is. They find this boy in a country house in England, and he's raised by the local squire. So he's raised to be a gentleman, even though he has nothing, no title, 
and he tries his best to be a good son to the squire who's raised him, but he's also a rapscallion and a bit of a cad, and Mm -hmm. he sleeps with every woman that he sees until he falls in love with a woman, Sophie, who is the daughter of the next-door squire, and tries to pursue her until he is kicked out of his house after some misadventures and then has to make his way in the world on his own and prove himself. He sleeps with a whole bunch more women, gets in trouble with a lot of husbands, makes it to London, gets in shenanigans there, is nearly executed, and then it turns out, whoops, he's actually the nephew of the squire who raised him. It was actually his sister who gave birth to him. So he is able to have a title and money and legitimacy, and he lives happily ever after with his love, who somehow forgives him for being a lecherous asshole. Mm-hmm. What a wild ride this movie is. Hell of a twist. I mean, you've described the plot, but it doesn't really do justice to the experience of watching the movie. The the tone and style of the movie is sort of more the story it than the story. It is a British New Wave film. It's actually on the latter half of the British New Wave, which started in the late 50s, where you've got a lot of young British directors who came up in theater, came up in TV, you know, aren't as they're still stuffy and and British, British stiff upper lip, <laughs> but they're less so than the previous generation. They're doing a lot of socially conscious films. They're doing a lot of working class oriented stories. You've got things like Saturday Night and Sunday Morning. You've got Tony Richardson, who is the director of Tom Jones. He did Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner and Look Back in Anger. And then they decided, let's do a period piece, right? Which is massively different than doing, hey, let's do a story about a bunch of working class East Londoners in the late 50s. It's let's take a classic novel and just put up our middle finger to everybody, everything, and every filmmaking convention, right? This film does whatever it wants at any given point. It starts off pretending it's a silent movie. It does weird irises and wipes. People break Mm -hmm. the fourth wall randomly. There's a narrator who comments on what's going on on screen, you know, and like ends scenes early when he feels like it. The camera work has absolutely no rhyme or reason to it. You watch some of the those scenes, in the, especially in the first half of the film where they're out in the country and they're going on fox hunts. People are getting drunk in barns and, and going out and swimming in lakes. And it's just the camera's going everywhere and it's up in people's faces and it's cutting around for no reason. And it's basically one giant F you to formalist filmmaking which as an experiment is very interesting to watch. It's very interesting to see a period piece in the Georgian era where people are supposed to be walking around all refined and, and with parasols and well-kept gardens and sipping tea. And instead people are dirty, drunk and fucking in the bushes. Right. 
And I mean, that yeah. seems like it's in line with Fielding's novel, right? So Fielding's novel at the time shocked people with its portrayal of high society. And <laughs> the satirical elements of this film are, are clear that like, you know, I mean, I love the two, like the, not, they weren't both tutors, but the two guys who were the adults who took care yeah. of the mm-hmm. legitimate nephew, who are just the most hypocritical people yes. you've ever seen in your life. Well, and and Sophie's father, too, when he finds out that she's hanging out with Tom yeah. Jones and he freaks out about it as he's like actively grabbing women in the town square. And you're like, what is happening? <laughs> so that sort of send up of the wealthy is also a lot of fun, but... Yeah, it's a zany. So the thing that it reminded me of, we've done Barry Lyndon in one of our previous years. I thought so much about Barry Lyndon. I was like, this is Barry Lyndon, but insane. It's it's Barry Lyndon. If the character of Barry Lyndon were sweeter and the movie were way zanier. (laughs) So depending on how you're feeling on the day, you know. Yeah. I mean, this is this is a movie that I think if it hadn't won Best Picture, right? If you're not interested in doing what we're doing, right? Going through Best Picture winners, going through nominees, being a completist. If you're not someone who is studying the British New Wave, I'd say, oh, you want a acidic look at the Georgian era? Great. Watch Barry Lyndon. You want a modern feel and energy to a period piece? watch Joe Wright's Pride and Prejudice. You can skip Tom Jones, you know? But if you if you are like us, well, it's like, okay, you're forcing yourself to watch it. Well, what's the value to it? And it's fascinating me because I don't really like the first half of this movie. The plot yeah. does not start until the midpoint. And I'm like, mm-hmm. that is an interminable wait for the movie to get to the point where I'm like, yes. oh, this is what I thought the whole movie would be. Well, for the first half... You don't think there's going to be a plot. It's just like manic, crazy shit happening at all times. And you're like, I guess this is the point of the movie. And then you get halfway through and you're like, oh, there's there's story. Stuff is now happening <laughs> that is making up a movie. And so then when it becomes sort of structured and there's like this plot twist at the end and you're like, there, oh, I guess there's story to this. The first half is just overwhelming to your senses. So this movie, I've thought like, oh, there was another movie this year where a guy gets a bunch of money to go somewhere and he loses it. And this is the, that mm-hmm. movie. So it again has that same plot point where you're like, I've given you 500 pounds, keep it with you. And you're like, he's not, he's yeah. not, keep, no one gets to keep the money they're going a journeying with. But yeah. to be fair to this movie, there are things that happen later where I was like, is that what's happening? Like when they reveal that he fucked his mom and you're like, he fucked his mom. I know. Mom? I was like, what? <laughs> And then also when they were going to hang him, I don't remember if that's after they revealed he fucked his mom or not. I'm like, maybe they will. I don't know what's going to happen. This movie is just crazy enough that they could hang the main character. I or no had idea. him commit incest. Well, and I, I liked the reveal that the guy who held him up for the money was like who they thought was his dad. Yeah. And then he finds out that it's maybe his dad. He's like, dad. And he like hugs. Well, and that, that's got a great, you know, for a movie that's ostensibly a comedy, which I don't honestly find that funny like it's enjoyable but it's not funny that's mm-hmm. one of the yeah. great laughs in the movie where it's like oh dad and it flips and you know he's put him up on the horse and the first line from the guy is i'm actually not your dad yeah. you know? <laughs> that's pretty good there are good moments it just is so difficult to understand what is trying to do as you watch it because it's veering wildly from thing to thing especially for the first half of the movie and you're just like 
like every new scene, you're like, I haven't even processed the last scene. <laughs> I don't know how to deal with this. I mean, it's applying the same energy and attitudes that you'd see one year later from another British New Wave film, A Hard Day's Night, where you watch mm. that and you go, well, the whole point is we're hanging out with the Beatles for 90 minutes. And it doesn't matter that there's weird asides and goofy things happening because the point is to hang out with the Beatles. And I don't, I don't understand what this movie is trying to say or do. It's, it, there's, no, there's definitely no deeper theme happening. It has the reverse of what plagues a lot of comedies, which is it gets funnier as the movie goes on. You get to the last third of it, and so much stuff is happening, and there's so much comedy of errors and comedy of manners going on. And you go, in most comedies, they go, oh, shit, we got to wrap up the plot and everything gets dramatic and there's fewer jokes in the last 15, 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And this movie is like, oh, this is how the movie's supposed to play out. But you waited too long to get me on board. It feels like two separate things, the first half and the second half. But the first half's really wild. Really wild. Well, you talked about them hunting, which is totally crazy. But then there's also stuff where like all of the women of the town get into a conflict and then they're hitting each other with seemingly bones they've pulled out of graves. Like stuff that goes on. You're just like, did I just see that? And what does it mean? And you're just supposed to accept that all of this stuff is happening. And it's crazy. It's very difficult to watch. I did think that Albert Finney was good. All of the reviews you see of this are like Albert Finney in a, an amazing performance. And he's very fun to watch. But my God, what is going on in this movie? Well, and then you, you also have the very bizarre reaction from the Academy to it of showering all this love on it where, you know, okay, the win and Tony Richardson winning for best director. But also the only time this has ever happened three actresses being nominated from the same film for supporting actress. And, oh, wow. and it's the only time it's ever happened. And also the combination of actresses is confusing to me because there's a lot of female characters in the movie and mm -hmm. the main love interest played by Susanna York, not nominated. And what? Not, Who's nominated? So you've got Diane Salento, who is more famously Mrs. Sean Connery. And she plays Molly Seagram, who's the uncouth woman from the first act that he has an affair with. And then there is Edith Evans, who plays Miss Western, who's the elder matriarch, right? The old lady who's very stern and things must be done by the book. She's I a great actress. She was funny. She is funny. Yeah. And she went on to be nominated, I think, two or three times more by the Academy. So, wow. you know, somebody legitimate. I get it. Great. And then there's Joyce Redman, who plays Mrs. Waters slash Jenny Jones, the woman he saves from being oh, raped. Who you briefly think is his exactly, mother. Exactly. Who has the very famous food-eating sex scene. Mm -hmm. That is so weird. That, we didn't even talk about that so scene. I, I think that that is obviously the standout sequence in the whole movie, right? Where it's just like, if you're going to skip watching this movie because you're not a completist or whatever... You just have to watch this three-minute scene and go, I can't believe that they got away with that in 1963. Yeah. I mean, it is in Britain instead of in America, but they get away with a whole hell of a lot of stuff in this movie. <laughs> they really do. No, it's a, it's a wild time. I don't know if you all have anything else to say, but I do want to say before we move on, just for our tracking for the podcast, there is a horse death in this Yay! movie. Once again, not the death of a horse, but a horse-inflicted death. 
of Tom Jones' mother, who is his like adopted aunt, he thinks at the time. I will say too, again, right? Like this idea that he's sweeter than Barry Lyndon when he thinks his benefactor is going to die and he's so sad about it. You're like, oh, what a nice boy. <laughs> yeah, he's not a bad guy. You just have to accept that like in the you know, ethics of this film. Everyone is just fucking everyone else indiscriminately at all times. I mean, that that is his flaw and that is his downfall, right? Is he thinks with his dick, right? He is yeah. an incredible horn dog, but is he a thief? Is he a killer? Is he a rapist? You know, like no. we're shown yeah. that there are far worse people in this movie than he is. He just loves to have sex. And it's like, well, yeah. okay. But but I like even Sophie, who he loves, is seemingly not that mad about it. Like every time she has the opportunity to forgive him, she does immediately. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, I guess it. You just have to accept it. It's part of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so those are our nominees. We also want to talk about if something else should have been nominated this year, and we have several extra films that we watched. Hmm. So we watched Charade, Eight and a Half, Dr. No, and HUD. I have no idea what order we want to go in. Any thoughts? I have no idea if there's an appropriate order. We watched them for somewhat different reasons. Let's do them in the order they're written. Sure. (laughs) I don't know why we put them like this, but it's okay. So the first one is Charade. It was number seven at the box office that year. I had not seen it before. Maddie, you had. Ben, you've seen Mm -hmm. Charade before? This is a fun little movie. It's like a, not a whodunit, but it's a little bit of a mystery, twisty, turny thing. So Audrey Hepburn is about to divorce her husband because she doesn't really know him. He keeps so many secrets. She's off on a ski trip and she meets Cary Grant while she's there and they have a little bit of repartee. And then she's like, maybe I'll see you when I'm back in Paris. And he's like, yeah, maybe. And she goes back to Paris and her apartment is empty. All the stuff is gone. And she's like, say what? And she ends up getting contacted by the police who are like, your husband died. He was thrown off the back of a train in his pajamas. We found this one bag containing a bunch of stuff, but none of it is really a good clue for us. We don't know what's going on. Do you have any idea what might have happened to your husband? And also maybe you murdered your husband. And she's like, I got no idea what's going on. She ends up going to his funeral and a bunch of strange guys show up and check to make sure the guy is dead. I love that funeral scene. Yeah. And then while she's at the funeral, too, she gets a a letter from the American embassy to come in and talk to them. And she goes to see a person at the embassy and it's Walter Matthau. And he's like, your husband during the war with this group of guys stole, I don't think he explains this at the beginning, but we learned stole like $250,000 from the US government and we want it back. And we think you know where it is, so give us the money. And so she has to figure out what's going on. And she brings along Cary Grant. She starts to fall in love with him. This is the other movie where there's a major age difference between the two actors. But I don't know. I found this one much more, (laughs) much easier to swallow than the one in How the West Was One. And yeah, there's all kinds of twists and turns as they're going along. Cary Grant gets a new identity like every 15 minutes. And she's like, who are you really? Are you this guy? Are you that guy? What's going on? And then the three men who came to the funeral were also in cahoots with her husband around the money. 
and they keep dying and she doesn't know who killed them. She starts to think it's maybe Cary Grant, but oh, spoilers as always. It turns out it's Walter Matthau. He was the guy who they thought died when they were hiding the money, but he's not dead. And Cary Grant is actually someone who works at the embassy and he's really the guy who's getting the money back. So it's fun. It is fun. I love Charade. This is one of my favorite Audrey Hepburn movies. As we just said about Sidney Poitier, I feel the same way about Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn. They've got some sort of quality. So watchable. I think from their first scene, you're like, oh, I'm very interested in whatever's happening with these two. It's fun. It's twisty. The cast is really good. I just think it's a great time. Did you enjoy it as your first watch? Mm -hmm. Ben, any thoughts about Charade? Fun movie. It's fun. We deserve fun movies. We needed some fun movies after this group of movies that we watched. If you haven't seen it, I advise you to go watch it. So yeah, that's Charade. All right. Next in our random order is Eight and a Half. Fellini continues to do therapy via film. And essentially it's Fellini having a fake version of himself on screen, having a nervous breakdown when he's making a giant sci-fi movie that's collapsing and his life is collapsing. And he was nominated for Best Director. It won Best Foreign Film, widely regarded as one of his best, if not his best film. It's super interesting. I will say I loved looking at it. Mm -hmm. It's so beautiful. There are tons of awesome shots. It's really neat. It's interesting because a lot of it plays out as, for lack of a better term, dream sequences. <laughs> it's like a, a lot of imagined, you know, things rather than stuff that's actually happening. The plot of it itself is fairly thin. He's a director who can't figure out how to make this movie. He has a, a mistress who comes to town. His wife is dissatisfied, so he invites her to town too. The two of them sort of, like, the the wife knows about his affairs, that marriage is dissolving, and meanwhile, he, you know, is imagining all of these various women from his life and their place in it. The, I I love the scene where he has his fantasy house where all of the women from his entire life are living in this house. He's got them doing, like, domestic labor, but of course they love it. And there's this, like, living in harmony element. His mistress is there. His wife is there. They're all having a great time. And my favorite thing about it is his fantasy You'd imagine this house is full of like some sort of sexual depravity in his imagination. But his fantasy is that the women of his life will bathe him and put him in a towel and carry him off to bed like what happened to him when he was a little kid. And you're like, dude, I get that this is you sorting out whatever the fuck's going on in your head, but it's hilarious. <laughs> I also really liked the opening scene with the guy who's in a car and he's trapped in the car and they're all stuck in traffic and everyone's either staring at him or actively avoid like ignoring him and then he finally gets out and he, he floats, floats away, away. Yeah, it's great <laughs> it's good it's a weird little arty movie what did you think about it kelsey so yeah it's capital a art i think it is gorgeous to look at it's a really beautiful film and i don't know a ton about the history of surrealism in film but there's definitely shots in this that end up reminding me of other surrealist pieces I've seen like the crowd shots in particular some of them really reminded me of a tv show I love 1967's The Prisoner which is this surreal Patrick McGowan spy mm -hmm. drama and you're like I'm seeing some things 
Mm-hmm. I don't know that I like I love the content of this movie. I haven't quite gotten around to figuring out how to articulate this, but I feel like the film canon has largely been defined by white men. And I think there's this perception from white men that their preoccupations are universal and sort of like inherently interesting. And I'm not mm-hmm. sure that's the case. And I think the movie does interesting things. Like there's like a metal level where they're commenting on filmmaking. They're commenting on the type of character who's in this movie. They're sort of going back and forth with it, but I'm not sure commenting on it really sort of addresses the issue. And then like, it's just deeply misogynistic. So that scene where he has that fantasy about all the women and like how he would like things to be, it's repulsive. Like at one point in that scene, he receives a nude black woman as a gift. Like it goes from being misogynistic to also being really racist. And it's like, yep, you, you got to sort this out on your own time, man. Like uh, this isn't, (laughs) this isn't doing anything, you know, for me, like, I don't think you have to be in love to understand that people are human beings deserving of respect. And that seems to be what he thinks has to happen. So yeah, I just had some frustration with, you know, those elements of the film. But yeah, it's gorgeous. I think he can direct. And I did love all the stuff that was running through it with like, the spaceship is 165 feet tall now. And you're like, what movie is he trying to make? Like, what's going on? That's fucking crazy. The ballooning budget of this movie. He's like, they spent 80 million on it. Can you believe they spent 80 million on it? And you're like, what? is happening and he doesn't even have a plot for the movie at this point they've hired actors and they're like so what's my role and he's like oh i'll tell you about it later no anytime the spaceship came up i was like this is pretty good and i think there's other parts that are that are funny in different places but i loved the um writer critic guy who he has read the script to all throughout it is telling him like this is everything that's wrong with your idea and why it's all so terrible and then he's variously getting you know, commentary from him about how like your movie needs to make sense. <laughs> like that you have to be able to tell what is going on in it. It's arrogant for you to not care if people understand what's happening in your movie. <laughs> and you're like, okay, this is all very good commentary for you, art house director. But it's super cool to look at. Eight and a half. Okay, Kelsey, you need to talk about our next one. Oh, Doctor No? I would love to. So yes. Maddie, you had not seen this movie before. Nope. I'm a big Bond fan. I am a huge Bond fan as well. Seen every single one. Bond films, AFI list, Oscar winners. That's how I got into film. Okay. Okay. Very good. So Dr. No is the first Bond film. It is obviously about... I don't have to explain the character, but sort of the plot. Bond. <laughs> explain who he is. Yeah. Sort of the plot of this one is we start off with a murder. A British agent has been killed in Jamaica and he's been investigating this guy named Dr. No. We find out that there's concerns that he is trying to crash or derail the rockets being shot out of Cape Canaveral. So Bond goes to Jamaica to investigate. He ends up meeting Felix Leiter, who is a great recurring character throughout the series, who's the CIA counterpart. And he figures out that Dr. No is on this island called Crab Key. And so they have to get out to Crab Key to stop Dr. No. He's been keeping the Jamaican natives away from the island through the use of a dragon, which is one of the more ridiculous elements of this film, which is a tractor with a flamethrower on it. And they eventually are captured by Dr. No. Bond is, as well as this woman that they meet while they're on Crab Key named Honey Rider, who is just a young woman collecting shells who gets caught up in, mm-hmm. in this whole situation. We learn that Dr. No is part of Spectre, the special 
ex- special executive for counterterrorism. It's, revenge it's always and a, extortion. Revenge and extortion. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Which is this organization that wants to be behind the scenes pulling the strings. They want to control who gets to space first. They want to control who wins the Cold War. And Dr. No in particular is out for revenge because he was rejected by the East and rejected by the West. And no one appreciated his genius. So he's out for the revenge element. Bond is able to eventually blow up their whole site by overloading the reactor, which I don't know what that ends up doing with radiation in Jamaica for the foreseeable future, but let's not worry about it. And he saves the day. And that's the first James Bond movie. I'm curious to know what Maddie thought about this as someone who has never seen a Connery Bond before and really isn't familiar with the earlier elements of of the franchise. It was fun. I mean, Connery is great. He's very charming. It's a lot of the iconography of it is all there in the first movie as you're watching you're like oh yeah the intro and the music and then this and you're like i recognize this universally as a bond thing you know it's bondy it's fun the hijinks are pretty silly the dragon was absolutely ridiculous yeah. <laughs> i was like i don't understand this conversation about it when they find the like tracks and you're like that's it's clearly like a tank or something like i don't understand it does kill um, their friend, though. So Yeah, I was like, I'm sorry. Their Jamaican friend gets burned alive in this? That was totally fucked. And the end, yeah, the that he melts down this reactor. I was like, is there going to be nuclear fallout? Apparently, who cares? <laughs> is what I wrote at the end. But I mean, he's good. I think he's a really good Bond. He's pretty charming, even though he does some bond type despicable things and i thought it was watchable i had a good time it, it's kind of like going back to the pilot episode of a really popular show and you go whoa this does not feel like the show it would become right it has a lot of trappings of the 1950s in its filmmaking style and its attitudes and its fashion still yeah. and like the quote-unquote 60s hadn't started yet for bond uh, it's very fascinating to then go one movie later with from russia with love and you're like oh this is a bond movie got it like we're now fully into it but yeah it's a it's a very curious curious film with a dragon tractor <laughs> the dragon is silly i thought it felt super recognizable to me which is what was interesting about it there's a lot that i feel like it, oh yeah that's bond and in the way that like specific elements of this movie are things that made it into Austin Powers to be parodied. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot about it where you're like, oh yeah, I totally get how this, you know, it has made it into the cultural conversation enough for me to recognize large parts of this movie as Bond archetypal spy type movie. Yeah, I debated whether or not, like, I don't think we're going to do a ton of Bond movies over the course of the podcast, but whether or not to have Maddie watch this one or From Russia With Love, and we might still end up doing From Russia With Love because there are still like a few elements of Bond that aren't quite established that we don't see Q in this movie, um, which Mm -hmm. is a big one, and he shows up for the first time in From Russia With Love. But yeah, this one, you know, the gun barrel opening is there, the Bond theme is there. We do have some silhouettes, but it's not quite like the full Mm -hmm. Maurice Binder opening of projecting on bodies and that comes there's a little bit of that in for much with love the whole set design of dr no's lair i think is incredible ken adams did a great job and my understanding is peter hunt who was the editor of this film was very instrumental in 
developing like a new style of editing for action films. So cutting on action. And there's a little bit of this, but he further refines it as it goes along. So in terms of like impact on film and film history, there's that element in this movie. And then one thing I learned, and I think this will be interesting for you, Maddie. So there's like a short documentary on the DVD that I watched. Bond's introduction, which I think is great and is clearly one of the all-time great introductions of the character where you don't really see him. You see his hands, you see his profile. And then, you know, Sylvia Trench says her name and then he responds with Bond, James Bond, is modeled after the introduction of a Paul Muni character in a film called Juarez. And then later in this movie, right, they have the scene where they're hiding from the dogs and they're underwater using the reeds to breathe out of, like in I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang. And I'm like, I think Terrence Young might be a Paul Muni super fan. (laughs) I don't know if there's other like Paul Muni references throughout this movie, but maybe as we get more into Paul Muni, we will find them. So I I thought that was pretty fun. I thought it was so funny because I was thinking about I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, but I also was thinking that it was cooler in I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang because they have that awesome underwater shot. And I was like, why didn't they copy that for this? I couldn't tell you. But yeah, it's fun. It's Bond, baby. Okay, last but not least, HUD. Maddie, do you want to do HUD? Sure. So briefly, HUD is a common occurrence for us on this podcast so far. Another (laughs) asshole Paul Newman. (laughs) So we've got, it's a family ranch. Paul Newman is the son of the head rancher. They have a very contentious relationship. He also has a nephew who is the son of his brother who has died at the beginning of the movie. We don't know why the brother has died. The main conflict plot of this is one of their herd of cattle dies mysteriously they can't tell why they call in the vet to look and he's like "Ooh, you might have a case of foot and mouth disease on your hands here we're gonna have to bring in the government to see and quarantine all of your cattle and if it is foot and mouth disease they're going to have to kill all of the cattle so that it doesn't spread throughout the country hud kind of wants to just say like fuck the government and sell all of the cows before they can come in and look at them but the father is very you know He's a rule follower. And so he's like, that's crazy that you would say that. We're never going to do that. So throughout the course of it, it's like hanging over their heads. What's going to happen with the cattle? Meanwhile, HUD, the nephew is really interested in him and wants to spend time with him. HUD at first seems to be like, fuck off, nephew. I don't want to deal with you. But then he decides it could be interesting to sort of bring him into his world and be a bad influence, basically. And they also have this maid who works on their ranch and he and the maid have kind of like a flirtatious relationship and then there's sort of a will there won't they with them hud meanwhile is sleeping with basically all of the wives of the town that is adjacent to them in like full view of the husbands for the most part he like takes people's wives out on the town at night and is like hey this is so-and-so's wife (laughs) like what is happening hud We find out because of the ongoing conflict between them that HUD is responsible for the death of his brother. Shortly after the nephew had been born, the two of them were out getting drunk one night and HUD was driving them home and there was a crash. The brother died. HUD was fine. And he thinks this is the reason the father has never forgiven him and their relationship has been terrible. But then he gets into a fight with the father and the father basically is like, You may think that's the problem, but I had already given up on you long before that because you don't care about anyone and you've always been terrible. So the father gives a speech to the nephew that I thought was actually really interesting about how it's important who we idolize because it changes the country, the people that we care about. So you're going to have to decide what's right and what's wrong and whether or not you want to follow HUD or be your own man. And so we find out that the 
they did have foot and mouth disease. They do have to kill all of the cattle in this scene where they bring all the cattle into a hole and then shoot them. That's pretty harrowing. And now the father feels like all hope is lost. His cattle who he lived his life for are gone. He doesn't have a good relationship with his son. It's like, what is there to live for? He ends up one night falling off of his horse in the night. And then he succumbs to his wounds after HUD and the nephew find him. The farm has now been left to HUD. And so he's asking the nephew to stick around and it'll teach him everything he knows. And the nephew at this point has decided he wants nothing to do with HUD because he's a monster. And so he tells him off and walks away and HUD's like, "Ah, you'll be back. And he's just sort of left at the ranch alone to be drunk. Oh, I didn't say the most important part. One of the nights when he's gotten really drunk and had this fight with the father, he's all pissed and ready to make mayhem. And so he walks into Alma, the maid's house that she lives in on their property, and is about to rape her when the nephew comes in and breaks it up and is like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And obviously that contributes to the nephew deciding he doesn't like HUD anymore. But yeah, that's the end is him alone at the ranch and the nephew has forsaken him and the dad is dead and there are no cows and Alma has left. Mm-hmm. That's HUD. Thoughts? I did not hate this movie. I thought it was pretty interesting. I liked it. <laughs> One of the things, so apparently they made some changes to the book to yes. make HUD the central character, but I still feel like Lonnie is the character that we're following, right? He's the character who's going on a journey, who changes mm-hmm. at the end. So I thought that was interesting to read because I think if I hadn't read that and you'd ask me, like, who's the main character of this movie? I would have said Lonnie is the main character. But I mean, it's Paul Newman. It's one of those things where you cast Paul Newman and the movie's going to be about Paul Newman. As the poster clearly says, Paul Newman is HUD. So Exactly. (laughs) There we go. He's the titular character. Yeah. And I thought the dynamics between the family were really interesting. I liked the grandpa a lot, but the fact that he can't love his son is like a huge flaw. Yeah. You're sort of like... Is HUD fucked up because he didn't love him or was HUD already fucked up and that's why he didn't well, love him? Well, I think him. it You're can't like, help. It's an interesting dynamic. Yeah. Right? It feels like HUD is acting out. He feels petulant. He feels like a child who is trying mm-hmm. to get a rise out of his dad constantly. And so that's interesting. I cried when they killed all the cows. It was so hard to watch that cow <laughs> death really scene. Sad. Oh, my God. And part of it is, like, obviously, it's just horrible to watch yeah. and you're well, not going to have a good time. Well, it's the way they shot it, too. But- the way they shot it was awesome. I loved how it looked. But also the fact that the father is so devastated by it because he really loves the cows. <laughs> You're also feeling his feelings as it's happening. And so obviously, you know, like we've talked about all of our angry white guys over and over again throughout the course yeah. of this podcast. I didn't really dislike The Hustler either, which is our other Paul Newman angry white guy movie. And I think for me, when these work and when they don't is entirely based on how well they develop the other characters. So if the other characters, if there isn't enough there for them to react to, if I can't understand why they continue to stay around this person, right, it's really hard for me to engage with the film because I'm not necessarily, again, inherently interesting in, like, the fact that this white guy just wants to sleep with all these women. I'm like, okay, that feels like a you problem. But if I'm, you know, can key into the other characters, it it does work. And I felt similar about the hustler. I really loved his his girlfriend in that movie. I thought she was so interesting. Um, And I think they do enough with Lonnie and particularly the grandpa in this movie. And even Alma. Alma, I think, is is an interesting character, too. I loved Alma. I mean, Best Actress winner, Patricia Neal, and then Best Supporting Actor winner, Melvin Douglas. It's, you know, it's it's a very good movie. Martin Ritt was nominated for Best Director. The movie didn't make it into the Best Picture pool. It's one of those 
oddities this year especially you know without the expanded 10 slots there's sometimes where you're gonna get people nominated for director and their picture doesn't make it in and that's basically not a thing anymore now that there's 10 nominees for picture all five best director nominees are gonna be in but this year you had three movies three directors whose movie was not nominated for best picture which again makes this year so weird on top of all this other stuff You've got mm-hmm. Martin Ritt, you've got Federico Fellini, and then you've got Otto Preminger for a movie called The Cardinal, which we did not watch. Mm-hmm. But yeah, HUD, good movie. Paul Newman's an asshole. I mean, he's an asshole and he gets what he deserves at the end, right? It all works for me, yes, because he gets what he deserves at the end, which is awesome. You never see that in these asshole movies. But also, like Kelsey said, everyone else in the movie is also so interesting that the story really works because you're like, he's an asshole. The dad is seemingly a good guy, but there's like something fucking going on with their relationship where you've always had him written him off. And then you're sort of like, does this have something to do with the mother being dead? There's something going on in their relationship where you have to believe that part of HUD being an asshole is this relationship with the dad. And then I loved that we finally get we didn't talk about that Brandon DeWild is the nephew who is the boy from Shane, whose whole role in Shane is to idolize this guy that he should not idolize and then be really sad when he leaves at the end. And so I was like going into it thinking, I guess that's just what Brandon DeWild does. <laughs> but in this movie, he's so much more interesting. You sort of see why he's interested in the nephew. You see how he is affected by his grandfather's advice. And then he makes a good decision for himself at the end. And you're like, hell yeah, man, you need to realize that HUD's life is not a life that you want for yourself and go live your own life. It's fantastic. People make interesting decisions. And I'll also say, obviously the Alma assault scene is horrible to watch, but a thing that I found interesting, and part of it is just the power of Paul Newman, because Paul Newman is totally adorable and charming, even when he's being an asshole. But I loved their relationship beforehand. You sort of buy why they are interested in each other. She's sort of this sarcastic, funny lady, and he's very charming, and you understand why they're kind of drawn to each other, even when she's like, I probably shouldn't get involved with this guy because I work here. And he's like, okay, if she doesn't want to get involved with me, I'll just go sleep with the various wives that I want to go sleep with. But you get why they're drawn to each other. And so then there's this real betrayal when he assaults her when he's drunk and he kind of feels bad about it but not enough and she's like you what the fuck is wrong with you (laughs) like i was interested in you and then you prove yourself to be a monster so bye that just i thought all the dynamics were way more interesting than your typical angry white guy movie i liked it yeah the choice to have him only date married women was another just notch and they're like he's just acting out he just needs someone I know. to know he's trying to get him. attention <laughs> he desperately needs attention so again for things that we're tracking he doesn't slap a woman in this movie i wish he had i desperately I mean, wish he had do we expand to paul newman commits violence against women or are we keeping it a slap count <laughs> i think the slap count is funnier i mean it definitely is So no slap in this one, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. So then finally, we didn't watch this, but I think Ben wants to talk about a little bit The Great Escape. Absolutely. The number 10 at the box office that year, giant hit, giant cast. You know, if we're talking big, huge epics, this is a giant World War II epic about a bunch of allied airmen who 
are notorious for escaping from prisoner of war camps. So the Nazis build a special camp designed to keep them in. And the first thing they do when they're all brought to this camp is plan a great escape. And it's based off of a true story of very determined Brits, Australians, Americans, Canadians who did this very thing. Obviously embellished a little bit to make it work on film, but you've got amazing performances from Steve McQueen, Richard Attenborough, tons and tons of other actors. I mean, you've got James Coburn, James Garner, oh my goodness, Charles Bronson, Donald Pleasance, tons and tons of great actors. It's a movie that has stood the test of time. It's a three-hour movie that does not feel like it at all, unlike (laughs) the other films that we have watched. And somehow it is, I wonder if it was just viewed as too popcorn to be taken Mm -hmm. seriously at the Academy. It was only nominated for Best Editing, which deserved nomination. But I did expect a few more things out of it. And if it had been an expanded 10 selection of films, perhaps Mm -hmm. it would have gotten in there. It certainly would have gotten in nowadays with our tastes. But yeah, a little surprising blockbuster film that did not make it in, but somehow How the West Was One did. Absolutely wild. (laughs) Stories of our time. Okay, so that all brings us to what should have won this year? May I ask, do you go by what was nominated first? Or do you just go broadly all movies released in 63 in our magic fantasy land, what would win Best Picture? I mean, I said yes, I would have been mad to all of the nominees. So no, you don't have to limit yourself to the nominees. Yeah. Or you can do both. If you have what you think of the five should have won and then in your dream world, what other thing should have won, that's fine too. I I guess I'll start. Of the five, I said I wasn't mad about Tom Jones, and I also wouldn't have been mad about America, America. Mm -hmm. I think probably I would have preferred America, America over Tom Jones if we're picking from the five. But my favorite movies that I watched this year were none of the nominees. (laughs) I think I already love Charade, but the surprise for me was HUD. I really liked HUD. And it feels probably more than Charade, like a traditional Oscar movie there's a lot more drama happening throughout it so i don't know maybe i think hud should have won yeah i'm in a similar place i feel like hud has it's you know it's tighter obviously it has really interesting characters and character dynamics i do think it's wonderfully shot as well so yeah i think hud is a really solid choice i think it's interesting that it wasn't nominated yeah but i will just throw out you know we talk about cultural impact all the time and Man, Dr. No created something with huge cultural impact. So probably the most yeah. cultural impact of any film that we watch. I think it's, yeah, it's it's not the best Bond movie by any stretch, but you can't argue with the cultural impact, but probably still had. What are your thoughts, Ben? So this is a year that really cross-pressures me, right? It, it pulls at the things that I view in film as great and, and the wild differences you can get in filmmaking. You've got intensely personal character drama with America, America. You've got a very quiet, simple, extremely well-executed story grounded by a great performance in Lilies of the Field. 
You've got an insane filmmaker doing therapy on screen in eight and a half. And then you've got HUD, which is a serious studio picture. And I don't know what I would choose. You know, I, I think I got to hand it to my boy, Martin Ritt, because he is also a fellow Elon University alum. And I passed by a giant HUD poster every day on my way to class. But on the other hand, I can't deny the full career value of Federico Fellini. So I'm a little I'm a little torn, but I think we're a trio of HUDs here. Okay. This is amazing because we were almost not going to watch HUD. If Ben had not been on the podcast this year, we would not have watched HUD because, as people heard in our stats episode, we've decided not to watch more Westerns that we don't need to watch. And this was kind of described as a Western, though really it does not seem to have the qualities of what we think of as a Western. It's a lot more like something like Giant Mm -hmm. than it is like a, you know, gunslinging sheriff and bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. So thank God we watched it. Yeah. It's HUDs all around. And it's, I mean, it's also contemporary. This It's not a period piece, so it's set in the time that it was made. So it's not really in the Old West either. Mm-hmm. Okay. So did the Oscars get it wrong? Absolutely. Yeah. Seems like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. They got it wrong, not just with the winner, but with the nominees. It's a weird set of nominees this year. Yeah. Not sure what happened. And yeah, How the West Was Won is... Why? I mean, I am trying to imagine going to the Cinerama Dome and watching this mm-hmm. on a pristine 70 millimeter projection as it's supposed to be seen, you know, with amazing sound and a giant audience. Would it be, if, I, if we were back in 1963, would it be captivating? You know, and would you just vote for it up? Oh my God, I can't believe this. I'm astonished by what they did. It was so Right, exactly. (laughs) And as we've seen with that and Cleopatra, capital B big does not mean timeless epic. Yeah. Well, we know that from many a year of this podcast. Oh, we should say that one of the, I guess, outcomes of Cleopatra was it did sort of start to kill epic filmmaking, right? So... Thanks for that. So thanks, Cleopatra. (laughs) Fuck you, Gone with the Wind, but thanks, Cleopatra. Okay. Well, I think we should take a little walk down the street to Jake Gyllenhaal Corner and check in. Obviously, it's 1963. Jake Gyllenhaal was not born. Mm -hmm. He could not have been in any of these movies. So it's a Dreamcast scenario. If he were alive in 1963 and was any age of Jake Gyllenhaal, is there a role in one of these movies that you think he would have been good in? Um... Oh, Ben, where are you going? I mean, Jake Joan Hall's Stavros in America, America, right? <laughs> or That's Jake Joan Hall as HUD, or Jake Joan yeah. Hall as Jimmy Stewart in How the West Was Won. That, that was what just occurred to me. I was like, could he be a mountain man? Here's the thing, because when we do this mind experiment, you not only are putting him into it and in something he would be interested in, but you're obviously taking someone out. So like, he could do HUD, but am I going to have no Paul Newman HUD? I don't think so. It's Paul Newman. So you got to think about that. And the Jimmy Stewart is such a great idea because we didn't like Jimmy Stewart in it. So Jake Gyllenhaal might improve things. I mean, not that it's ever great, right? But you stick Jake Gyllenhaal in the role and you take a, you know, a gal and maybe it's even like a slightly younger Jake Gyllenhaal and she sees him and is like, that's the man for me. 
maybe a little bit more believable than 55 year old Jimmy Stewart. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. How fast she falls in love with Jimmy Stewart is one of the biggest mysteries about that movie. I think that makes a lot of sense. Him in that movie. I've just never seen Jimmy Stewart on screen and been more like, oh, I wish Jimmy Stewart wasn't on screen. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. Not that, you know, we want Jake Gyllenhaal to be in this horribly racist movie, but in terms of like improvement. Yes. Greatest. I think he'd be good. So let's get to some conclusion thoughts. Do you see yourself coming back to any of these movies? Well, yeah, if I've got 90 minutes to kill, I am watching Lilies of the Fields for our boy Sydney. If you want just like a pleasant Absolutely. moment, yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah. I will potentially rewatch Charade at some point in my life. And I quite liked HUD. I'm going to be thinking about it, I think. I don't know that it would be soon, but I might revisit that. I mean, someday. it's tough subject matter, which is always hard for a rewatch when mm-hmm. the world is tough. Yeah, exactly. It's a lot easier to turn on lilies. Of the it's a fields. lot easier. I'm with you both. You know, again, program lilies of the field right along Sister Act. That's a that's a fine evening. Yep. Definitely would rewatch Charade. Hud is tough, but I think it's eminently watchable, and it's not you know so long that it would be. Unbearable. Yeah, it's only like about two hours, which bless it. <laughs> and I'll rewatch Doctor Now any day of the week in the way that I'll rewatch any Bond movie any day of the week. I have the complete set. I pop them in from time to time. It's going to happen again. <laughs> as much as I had problems with Eight and a Half, I do think there's a lot to unpack in it. Like it's 1, a pretty dense movie. And so I think there definitely is rewatch value in that as well, even though. Oh, boy. <laughs> Fellini's got a lot going on. <laughs> he probably could use some therapy and not just filmmaking. Well, also just not just Catholicism, right? That's the root of the issue, really. <laughs> Too much Catholicism, not enough therapy. He needs to go to the Southwest Desert and go to a chapel and hang out with those nuns yeah, and they'll yeah. sort him out. <laughs> they will sort him out. Maybe he does need to go and build a chapel. It seems sort of therapeutic. This is an interesting one for what have we learned, because I feel like I've done the opposite of learning what the Academy is interested in by them choosing Tom Jones. I don't know how to read that. I don't know what it means. I don't understand its place in the canon of Best Picture winners. I think I think it is one of the best examples of fervor at a very specific length of time, right? I mean, we're talking about the, the award cycle, award season, whatever, and if you capture the attention and the excitement of people for two, three, or four months while mm-hmm. it's watching and voting time, you can win Best Picture. It'll, it can happen. Wow. <laughs> you too can win Best Picture with your absolutely wild movie. Although more broadly with the nominees, right, we do see that they are still appreciating scope. They love scope. And they love movies where white people and black people are friends. Yeah, I mean, it is nice if you don't, if you, if you make it light. Yeah, it's going to be nice. <laughs> but nice. here's the thing. It's not only white people and black people. It's white people, black people, Hispanic people. Yeah, I thought that was a fun. Baptist, they have an Irish, Catholics, absolutely. An Irish priest, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And capitalist guys. Yeah. Even he'll be brought <laughs> in and, you know? Yeah. We all live in harmony in the lilies of the field. So- our patterns, angry white guys, one of them is quite clear this year. We've got HUD. I mean, um, I think the director in eight and a half, too. He's maybe not so angry, but he's toxic. 
he's got some issues to work through, that's for sure. <laughs> Feels like most of our angry white guys of this year. Yeah. Other than, I guess, kind of Richard Burton and Cleopatra, but he's dealing with a lot. <laughs> he's yeah. more sad than anything. He's really sad and drunk. <laughs> Biopics. Cleopatra is adjacent, but not exactly. Yeah. Fictionalized America, America. Right? Based yeah. off of his uncle. Yeah. True. It doesn't have what... Kelsey and I like to call the soup to nuts approach where you are starting with someone before they have done whatever their big thing is, taking them through doing their big thing, and then like usually to the end of their story or death. Because the guy in America America didn't really do a big thing other than go to America. He's just a guy. It's true. We did have a horse death. I think if we are including non-nominees, we actually have two horse deaths. Because <laughs> the grandpa falls off his horse. The grandpa life. was a horse death. Yeah. Yeah. You're not wrong. And then original ideas, quote unquote. We have just one of our nominees this year, America, America. And then Cleopatra is based on a book. How the West was won is interestingly based on a series of life articles. And then Lilies of the Field and Tom Jones are also both novels. Yeah. So one out of five. Pretty normal. It's a pretty normal rate. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the podcast before we talk about what we're going to talk about next. Any closing thoughts? Weird year. Weird, weird year all across the board. What we wanted to ask, I guess, before we leave is the reason you're on this episode is when I was talking to you about the podcast, you were like, I got to come on for Tom Jones. Why? That's weird. <laughs> Why Tom Jones? I, it really is as simple as this is the weirdest film ever to win Best Picture. And yeah, it, I would put it in the lower... I mean, the bottom 10. I mean, I haven't done a ranking in a long time. It is certainly not the worst movie to win Best Picture. There are a few absolutely not good movies. And this is a movie that I think the 100-minute or 95-minute version of this film is a masterpiece. And that movie doesn't exist. You know, it's a movie that Tony Richardson actually never thought was his best work. And he looked back on it was surprised that he won best director and it was so successful before he died. He cut a different version of it. That's eight or nine minutes shorter, I believe. So he too, not enough, not enough, not enough, (laughs) absolutely not enough, but it's also a year where you just, I don't understand how all this stuff happened. You know, three actresses from one movie and supporting actress, Mm -hmm. three director nominees who didn't get their best picture nominee. It's very odd. Very, very odd. We like an odd year. There's a lot to talk about. Well, thank you for joining us. It's been fun having another person and opinion on the podcast. If you ever want to come back, I think you're more than welcome. I'm sure there are some other odd years for me to join for. Yes. No. Think of other odd years or, you know, whatever whatever your favorite winner is, maybe something like that. You've probably already covered the big years, so. Well, we've been doing them in random order, so maybe. Possible. (laughs) And it's possible not. We're only a fifth of the way in to all of the years, so. It's been fun, though. Thank you for coming. I think this was a treat. I'm glad I could bring the white male perspective. It's much it's needed. It's been sorely lacking. Yeah. <laughs> it's been fun. Thank yes. you. Kelsey, what are we talking about next time? Well, next time we are jumping pretty far into the future. We will be covering the 91st Academy Awards or the films of 2018. The nominees that year were A Star is Born, 
Black Klansman, Black Panther, Bohemian Rhapsody, The Favorite, Green Book, Roma, and Vice. Indeed. It's another one with a lot of movies. And spoiler alert, we're adding more. (laughs) We've gone insane again and have expanded into a 16 film bracket. So that'll be a lengthy series of episodes. What of these have you seen? I've only seen Black Panther. Wow. Mm -hmm. I have seen all of these other than Green Book and Vice. So I was hoping to never watch Green Book, but it's happening. Can't wait. So we'll find out. We'll find out how we feel. We'll find out who wins the the 16 movie tournament again. Exciting times. In the meantime, if you have thoughts, comments, questions, concerns, reach out to us at OscarsWrongPod at gmail.com. We're on Twitter and Letterboxd at OscarsWrongPod, and our website is OscarsWrongPod.com. If you're enjoying, tell a friend, leave us a review, and subscribe. New episodes of the pod come out every other Friday at 6 o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts. 